Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern coast of Hitler's European forces. Bonjour, my name is Clément Horvat, a Frenchman, history buff and author of Till Victory, the Second World War by Those Who Were There, published by Pen and Sword Books in October 2020. In Till Victory, a podcast about World War II and peace, I want to have conversations with World War II veterans and historians. And in this episode, I can have both. As world-famous Tom Rice, a veteran of the battles of the 101st Airborne Division, used to be a history teacher, and you can definitely hear that. Of course, he has told this story many times, even on television, but it also seems like he's enjoying sharing those anecdotes and his unit's history. And it's actually the reason why I had to cut this episode in two parts. What you cannot hear however, is the man's age. I'm only 32, and I wish I had Tom's energy. Tom Rice, the legend, 98 years young, still jumps out of airplanes. In fact, today, June 6, 2020, he was supposed to jump again on the same spot he did 76 years ago, just like he did last year. Of course, it was cancelled due to the coronavirus crisis, but he's looking forward to next year. So I gave him a call at his home near San Diego to talk about his training, D-Day, and being welcomed as a hero every time he comes back to Normandy. Hello? Hello, Tom. How are you doing? Uh, fair to middle, and I hope things work out all right for you here. Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. I guess you're pretty sad over the fact that you can't come to France and jump like you were supposed to. But I read that you were planning to jump for your 100th birthday. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. But yeah, I'm 99 and uh, no, almost 99, 98 and about uh, uh, 10, 12. (laughs) So we'll be careful here and uh, stay as healthy as possible. So I'll be ready to go for the next one. And then uh, in Holland, uh, I jumped last year uh, with four ambassadors yeah. who had never jumped before, and they were asking me all kinds of questions. They were they were uh, scared spitless. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with the beginning. Um, what was your reaction when you first heard about the war in December 1941? Well, I was on a, uh, it was a Sunday, and uh, there were four of us on the basketball court, and the uh, basketball was a crazy-looking thing. It was an oblong shape, and it wasn't really all the way around. We were shooting baskets, and I had a a radio, and it was a half-court thing, a guy by the name of uh, uh, Arthur uh, Blaisdell was there, and uh Daryl Thompson and myself and one other fellow, I can't remember who it was, but we were playing two against two basketball and we're shooting at the basket uh, backboard and the darn thing wouldn't go in because it was so crazy. And uh, we had the radio in the middle of the court and it was uh, uh, wide open, you know, uh, uh, very loud so we could hear it. So we heard the announcement and so we stopped and then uh, all crowded around and began to listen 
and uh, this is a military community, so we were well aware of a lot of things that go on from time to time and see battleships moving and aircraft flying and and uh, people rushing around doing this and that. But uh, we were just out of high school probably a year in 41, December of 41, so uh, it didn't register too much with us. So we got back on the game again, and we're shooting and couldn't get that basketball in that hoop because it was so crazy uh, shape. And uh, we gave up on that. So Arthur uh, Blaisdell went on home, and his mother lived in Coronado, and his, his, his father was fire chief at uh, Honolulu, as far as I remember. And uh, Daryl Thompson left, and I went home, and then we just listened on individually on our own radio to the best we could. Everybody was rushing around in the city uh, at key places, not really knowing what to do, just waiting to hear information coming in. They really didn't know what happened, really. But it was a sneak attack for the most part. So the, the more they mentioned the word sneak, the angrier people got, I guess. And uh, on the basis of that, Time went by until the next day, and then Franklin Roosevelt had Congress declare war, and people began to move out and around the city, and Coronado was born of naval aviation, so there was a lot of aircraft noise around, mm-hmm. and people moving in and about, <laughs> and people began to, the men began to wonder what to do and how to do it. And I decided, uh, I was in my second semester of my sophomore year, so I'm not going to rush around. I'm going to wait and see what's going to happen and see what they do and see how they organize and then make my decision. So after about uh, four or five months of, uh, of schooling, I dropped out a little bit for a couple of months and, and looked at the uh, uh, U.S. Maritime Service. I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. I looked at the Marine Corps. There was not much doing on the Marine Corps, and uh, no activity really there that was significant. The Navy, I didn't like the Navy, so I was a foot soldier. My father was killed in uh, in an aircraft accident, naval aircraft accident, in 1934, uh, May 26th. Oh. So <clears throat> uh, in the recruiting station every day that I went and visited to see what was happening, I looked at that uh, poster and it had a parachute on it and a guy jumping from an airplane. And uh, uh, since I was oriented toward being a soldier and uh, moving in the direction of uh, aviation, uh, I put those two together. So I became a soldier in an airplane and uh, that fits the paratrooper meaning for me. How was your training with the paratroopers? Constant, continuous, mm-hmm. innovative experimental, and everything we did was new, mm. including all of our weapons. We had physical training. The last visit to the uh, recruiter, uh, I was talking with him a little bit, told him what I would, was interested in, and uh, he said, for the most part, we can sit you out right now. But uh, they gathered together about 12 of us before a second lieutenant, and the flag of the United States, and he read, read Article War Number 69, go home and put yourself together and uh, take care of your will and whatnot, and they'll be back here by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. So we did that, and uh, we took the oath of office, 
mm-hmm. and uh, they sent us to uh, uh, San Pedro, and uh, we started our orientation there. Now, I had about a year and a half to two years of college, so uh, I was kind of fortunate. Mm-hmm. And the 101st Airborne Division is made up of uh, two regiments of infantry. Mm-hmm. We found out that the Germans had a number of regiments of Germany that surpassed ours. Our total number of men were uh, 2,000. The Germans were 3,000. So we were undermanned. So the uh, two regiments of uh, uh, infantry in the 101st were the 502 and the 506 parachute infantry regiments. Mm -hmm. Now that puts us uh, 2,000 for the most part undermanned. Colonel Johnson was uh, an officer coming out of the Naval Academy. He didn't like the Navy too well, but he was a boxer and whatnot, and that appealed to him. And he transferred to the uh, uh, Air Force, and then he heard of uh, uh, infantry tactics taking place and a new development beginning in, uh, I think it was Fort Sills, Oklahoma. So he moved in that direction, and uh, since he was ranked as a colonel, uh, he headed up the 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment. Okay, now that put another 2,000 in the 101st, and so we were, for the most part, equal to the German uh, 91st Air Landing Group. Mm-hmm. German soldiers in the Airborne were attached to the uh, aircraft in the American build-up or table of organization. We were attached to the infantry, mm-hmm. so there's two different emphases there. Our equipment was different, and from the Treaty of Versailles, the uh, Germans, for the most part, were moving away and trying to break all the rules and regulations that existed. And uh, one of them was they could only have a standing army of 100,000. They violated that. Uh, They could not have aircraft, so they went to gliders and practiced bombing with uh, flower sacks. Mm -hmm. And then they innovated uh, airborne troops jumping from... Uh, aircraft. So we were watching that for the most part. And uh, Japan was also doing some experimentation, so we can't be left behind. So the 506 was at Camp Tacoa, Georgia, just ahead of us. 502 was at another station, Mm -hmm. uh, I think somewhere in Oklahoma, and we're training. Training was pretty much the same. A heavy duty on physical. Colonel Johnson, our regimental commander, uh, knew he had to catch up, and he knew that the 501st was a, an attachment to the 101st Airborne Division. We were just an attachment mm-hmm. until we were completely absorbed, and that took uh, probably another year and a half or so. We had to prove ourselves. Colonel Johnson of the 501 wanted two kinds of people. One, college kids. And number two, athletes, mm-hmm. because he had no time to take bozos and make soldiers out of them. They had to come pre-qualified uh, in uh, two those two categories. So I ended up going to uh, Camp Tacoa, Georgia, with 12 other guys from San Pedro. We took an IQ examination on the night before, and uh, it was 2 o'clock in the morning we were taking that thing. Mm-hmm. And I discovered that they were uh, looking for uh, radio operators, and I knew a little bit of Morse code, so I flunked that Morse code test in a hurry, because I'm not going to carry a, 
uh, a heavy-duty piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. And uh, a radio is a high-priority target for an enemy uh, artillery and an enemy soldier. Mm. So uh, I took these guys from uh, uh, Camp Tacoa, Georgia, after 13 weeks of basic training. And one of the items in the basic training was uh, uh, run relays of about uh, 250 yards. Now, Colonel Johnson came by, and he he, uh, talked to Captain Phillips, our company commander, for a moment. And then he came over to me and told me that he's going to jump on my back. And I'm going to carry him 250 yards to the uh, end of the uh, race. And then when we get to the end, we turn around, and uh, I'm going to jump on his back. I weighed 137. He weighed 157. So I had a little bit of struggle. I didn't think I could make it, but but I did. After the race was over, uh, he walked by to Captain Phillips and smiled like a a turkey vulture and bounded off to uh, his... uh, office to finish up work, I guess. Then the next thing we did is, uh, since I arrived at Camp Dakota, Georgia with about 12 guys, we were uh, trucked 13 miles outside the city of Camp Dakota, Georgia to a CCC camp, Southern Conservation Corps camp, and, and uh, we lined up in front of a uh, tower that was 36 feet high. It was a nacelle of an old C-47, mm-hmm. awkwardly built, and on one, two doors, uh, just opposite one another. And uh, <clears throat> one of the doors you enter from the ladder, the second door you jump out, and uh, after re- proper instructions, and the instructions were that uh, you were going to be, uh, they were told you were going to be strapped to a uh, uh, webbing, and uh, we're going to pat you on the derriere, and uh, when you go out, you're to look straight out and not down. Hmm. Uh, you're to count 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, exchange the D-ring from your right hand to your left hand. If you drop that D-ring, you're in deep trouble. You get one more chance, and if you didn't do it right, they sent you to W camp, and you were gone the next day. Hmm. So I believe that he... Uh, uh, had tested about 4,000 soldiers that came from all over the United States, individuals uh, that were in jail, uh, promised that they'd be good boys if they got into the uh, Airborne, and they would obey, obey rules and regulations, and uh, their penalty would be uh, dismissed. So 4,000 of them went through that, and of the 4,000, 2,000 he kept. And those guys were a lot of athletes and a lot of college kids. Hmm. So after 13 weeks in Camp Dakota, Georgia, we uh, went to jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia. We were there four weeks. We did phase A, B, C, and D. And uh, phase A was physical education. We were in such good physical education that when the drill instructors uh, tried to get us to do push-ups or or side straddle hops, we did them twice as fast, twice as long, and we do some of them wrong so that uh, we tested the uh, uh, drill instructors out. One of them would come over to us and, uh, okay, you did it wrong, uh, 25 push-ups. Mm-hmm. So we did 25 push-ups, but before we did it, we say, uh, which arm, Sergeant? And that boiled them over. 
we we were we were for the most part their enemies from that point forward. We've had more fun fighting and fighting our way through Camp Dakota, Georgia, and to uh, Fort Benning, as you can imagine. So now we're temporarily attached as we made five jumps. First jump was uh, the hardest one. Uh, uh, I was uh, I jumped number four all the time. We jumped at uh, 1,250 feet near the Chattahoochee River. And that was another uh, 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 terror put in front of us because we knew the river was close by. And some of the fellows uh, in 506 had landed on the bank of the river or in the river. Mm. Now, whether they were taught how to get out of a parachute and and drop it to 30 or 40 feet, I have no idea. But a couple of them were killed uh, doing some kind of enactment that wasn't proper there at the time. Mm. So we got through our five jump schools, and we got our boots, and we got our uh, wings, and and we thought we were big shots. And the uh, Air Force uh, liked to pick fights with us, and we liked to pick fights with them. We liked to pick fights with other airborne and other straight-leg infantry units. So for the most part, we gained a reputation that was some places good and some places not so good. Yeah. Uh, the MPs uh, all over the United States didn't like us too well because we were hellraisers and and uh, we took our chances and uh, we we enjoyed taking the chances. We got to know each other for the most part because uh, we uh, defended one another one time or another. We caused a riot in Charlottesville, North Carolina, when one of the fellows by the name of Calamantis uh, got a beer in the Crystal Cafe and walked by some uh, individuals who were uh, uh, from the Air Force. One of them stuck his foot out and tripped him. He fell and the beer went all over the floor. <laughs> he got up and walked over and got another beer, went back to his uh, to where he was seated. And after we seated a few minutes, he, raised, he got under the table and raised up under the table and spilled all the beer from the other guys. And he yelled, Geronimo, and the riot started. <laughs> so it was a, a weekend riot for the most part, and I wasn't involved in it with my buddy because we were en route to uh, Charlottesville, North Carolina, and we heard about it. But the same guys were arrested and then released and rearrested, and uh, the jails were full all the time. Now, about six or eight of them uh, decided they had enough fighting and they wanted to go to Washington, D.C., and the train came through there at an odd hour and didn't stop. So they broke into the uh, uh, train station and got the red lantern and stopped the train and uh, got on board and got to convince the conductor that uh, uh, they're willing to pay, but not too much. So they got to Washington, D.C., and they spent two or three weeks. Now, they're AWOL, and when they got back to camp, uh, their passport was, uh, for the most part, checked, and, and uh, they were held for Colonel Johnson. Colonel Johnson came and got him out of the difficulty. But the whole regiment then, for the most part, uh, could not wear their boots, could not wear their jump wings, and had to stay in camp for a week <laughs> till uh, the uh, threat of anything else might happen. So that was just one of the incidents that, uh, that took place. So our reputation went on from there. Yeah. <laughs> After Fort Bending, Georgia, uh, we went to Camp Mackle. Uh, that was in North Carolina, and we uh, did some maneuvering with the 101st. Now we're attached to the 101st Airborne Division. And uh, there was a group of pathfinders that were uh, 
for the most part uh, brought into being, and they wanted me to experiment with them. So I got with about five or six guys, and and uh, we jumped uh, about uh, the night before an operation that took place in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. We hid our parachutes and, for the most part, uh, scouted out the area and found out a great big watermelon patch. We dug holes and, and uh, we stole some watermelons from the, uh, uh, the the patch and put them in the holes. And when the when the uh, troops came in, we distributed them to uh, the most part guys in my company because we didn't know when we were going to eat. Mm-hmm. But the next morning, uh, I stood in the middle of the uh, drop zone with a orange flare, and uh, the lieutenant landed near me, and and uh, I didn't wasn't fully dressed. I had my jacket off. And he said, you better get that on. The general's coming in. And uh, he came in uh, by parachute and landed near me. And I was okay. I got the flare lit. And when I heard the engines, and uh, uh, we made a good landing. From there, we went on the maneuvers. And uh, that was another three weeks there. A lot of funny incidents occur. One of them was a uh, chaplain. It was a Catholic chaplain. And uh, we didn't have any food. Uh, K-rations were, for the most part, one of the experimental things that we did have because they were made for paratroopers only. And they finally were adopted by the regular infantry as a make-believe thing. And they got used to it, but we never did. Finally, they went to C-rations, and they were in tins. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, uh, when we were working with the British, we uh, used uh, 10 and 1 rations. Mm-hmm. One box of rations for 10 days. Or one man, or uh, two days for five men, or five days for two men, any multiples uh, mm-hmm. thereof. We didn't like the British operation uh, by way of food anyway. <laughs> triacle, we never understood triacle. <laughs> but uh, after the maneuvers, uh, we went to uh, railroad uh, transportation, went to uh, Camp Miles Standish in Boston, and we'll put aboard the uh, USS General, or rather, uh, uh, William G. Gothels as, a, as an old uh, Liberty ship. It was a concrete reinforced with steel piece of junk and could only go about 8 to 10 knots an hour. Mm-hmm. So we traveled in convoy. It took us 10 days to cross the Atlantic, and we landed in Glasgow, Scotland. And uh, on board... It was thoroughly crowded. The bunks were 18 high, and the bunks were about uh, two feet wide and about eight feet long, all canvas. And it was really a sweating situation. You never did sleep down there, so a lot of the guys went up on deck and slipped into the gun turret. I got the mumps from uh, on both sides of my face uh, from uh, Camp Miles Standish. It was the one the filthiest camps ever went through. On board ship, it really broke out, so they put me in quarantine, so I had sheets and pillowcases, and I was in comfortability for the most part all the way across. And when we landed in Glasgow, I took 10 men, went to a naval hospital. We settled in there for 10 days, got out of the quarantine. And then I took the guys down to 101st and Hampstead Marshall and Lambourne and a number of other cities, can't quite remember the names of them for the most part now, but it was southwest of uh, London. And uh, well, we had uh, several operations, Operation uh, Beaver, Tiger, and uh, Overlord it was. Mm-hmm. We were supposed to jump on each one of those 
and then assemble and uh, reenact everything that we were supposed to do when we got to France. Mm-hmm. We didn't worry about too much where we were going because we were concentrating on what we were doing and what we were doing and how we were going to do it. Mm. So we would move from uh, Lamborn, where we were stationed in England, to one of the 11 small airports north and east of London. The name of it was uh, Merrifield. Uh And uh, on June 1, we went to Merrifield as a regiment, and we stayed in Merrifield till June 5. And I was given special duty and had to be a gopher. I had to know what the uh, regimental uh, executive officer was doing, where he was and why, and how to get a hold of him, him in a big hurry. So the rest of the company was looking at dioramas and all kinds of equipment that, for the most part, we'd be using. Mm-hmm. And they even put some uh, GIs dressed as German officers walking around inside the uh, uh, camp area just to orient us and keep us alerted. So I never did see the dioramas. So I didn't know where we were going. I heard from one of the lieutenants uh, the name San Mary Iglesias, mm-hmm. meaning Holy Mother Church. I didn't know where that was, but it was some at some distance not too far away. Oh, uh, this was now June 5th, and I was released on uh, early evening June 5th, went back to the company, and a regimental commander, Howard Johnson, uh, was uh, uh, come aboard uh, the uh, area where we were. We gathered, and he stood on the hood of a jeep, and he made his nice speech. And he was a Bowie knife thrower, <clears throat> and he had a four-foot-by-eight-foot piece of plywood with Tojo image on one side and Hitler on the other. And he would throw his Boeing knife at it and uh, it'd stick it properly. One time he threw it, and it, he was too close, and the, the handle hit the uh, backboard and it bounced off and, 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 and uh, hit him. <laughs> uh, we knew with a knife speech in that incident and he had the knife speech, uh, a knife attached to his leg, and he was going to reach down and uh, at the final crescendo of his uh, fight talk, like New Maratney would do for Notre Dame, give us a rah, 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 and what do we here for? And we're supposed to say, to kill Germans. Well, I guess we did that for his pleasure. And as he reached down to pull out his Bowie knife, he couldn't get it out. And uh, some of the guys started to laugh. Uh, and the laughing kept on, and for the most part, the poor colonel was totally embarrassed, and he left his bowie knife in his leg and pulled out his trench knife and, and they gave his head, put the bowie knife over his head and, and gave us the final uh, word to kill Germans. Uh, then he wanted to shake hands with every one of us, so the whole battalion, uh, he favored for the most part the first battalion, so the whole battalion lined up and one by one he shook hands with one of us and Godspeed and Good luck on all the, all the good amenities that the soldiers are supposed to know when they go into combat. And uh, one of my fellows in one of my squad, in my squad named Marvin Van Busker, uh, we had dinner together. We had peas and carrots and ice cream and everything that you were, for the most part wanted, as much as you wanted. Mm-hmm. And then we took showers. Well, Marvin took a shower and uh, in a canvas area. Uh, that marked off the uh, shower room, and he left his dog tags uh, hanging on the canvas area. And when he left the uh, showers, uh, he uh, forgot to put it on, 
and walking through the aircraft, we were a group of a squad of people. And he told me that uh, in, in a little bit of his dog running and, char- and charging and uh, walking fast, he, could, he couldn't hear his dog tags bang in his mess kit. Mm-hmm. So we looked and found out he had no dog tags. So we took his equipment. He went back to the shower room and tried to find his, uh, his, can- his uh, dog tags and couldn't find them. So when he came back, he uh, had a piece of canvas with him, and we cut it up into two pieces, made some... Uh, canvas dog tags for the most part, and he wore those for the rest of the time in the military. (laughs) (laughs) So you're finally boarding the plane for D-Day. Tell us about that day. We got to the aircraft and uh, we uh, packed our bundles, loaded our bundles, released our bundles. I don't know the names of the pilot or the co-pilot or the crew chief. But we did that several times so everything would work out properly. When we loaded, there was 18 paratroopers in the aircraft, the pilot, co-pilot, and uh, the crew chief. I was the last one to get aboard because I'm jumping number one. Mm-hmm. Marvin Van Buskirk was jumping number 18. We didn't know the name of the drop zone, where it was, but somewhere to the uh, uh, north and west we were going to jump. And the flight time was uh, 57 minutes. We would be preceded by a group of pathfinders uh, in the four drop zones of about six or seven pathfinders per drop zone with a piece of equipment called Rebecca. Mm-hmm. And uh, it emitted a uh, Morse code signal, which would be, let's say, D dot dot dash. And that would be the Morse code for letter D in the uh, in the evolution of the Morse symbols. And uh, A, I'm not sure what uh, the symbol would be for that. Let's make it up. Let's say it's dot dash. Uh-huh. Okay, so each one had a particular code. And uh, above the door of the aircraft was a red, a white, and a green light about the size of a 50 cent piece. Mm-hmm. And then the crew chief stood right near the door. I stood in the door, and uh, we took off from Maryfield at uh, 8.41 English double summertime. And it took us uh, a little bit of time to assemble because we were in section number 16, and I was in the right-hand plane mm-hmm. and uh, standing in the door. Uh, when the lieutenant, who was the jump master, gave us the clue, the most verbal and uh, physical. There was no door on the aircraft. You could hear a lot of rumbling and noise and aircraft engine and uh, every noise that a city could produce was producing that aircraft right away. Hmm. And uh, we flew across the English Channel, or rather, I, I should say, we flew toward uh, Portsmouth Bill. Uh, England, and when we reached Portsmouth Bill, we dropped from down from 5,000 feet to 1,500 feet to get underneath the German radar and cross the English Channel at uh, uh, 1,500 feet. About the middle of the English Channel in our flight route was an American submarine, and it it gave us a go signal by flashing lights, and the uh, uh, whole armada of aircraft numbered 982 C-47s mm-hmm. with 20, almost almost 20,000 jumpers. 
That included the uh, artillery and um, the medical uh, apparatus and all of the doctors and, and individuals associated with that and any other special units. So it's closely to 20,000, but we only really account for infantry as to 13,200. So the 101st and 82nd jump in the Normandy area uh-huh. near and uh, inland from Utah Beach. We flew between the Cottonton Peninsula mm-hmm. and the Brittany Peninsula. So you're familiar with those names and those locations, aren't you? Of course I am. Yes. We passed the Jersey and Guernsey Islands. Didn't cause any difficulties there, but they had been bombed. And for the most part, the small German attachment there was obliterated. Uh, at the point where they gave us a signal, the second signal from the second submarine, we turned left. And uh, we entered the Cottonton Peninsula at Barnesville. Uh-huh. Now, I'm in number one, and I'm in the door. And uh, the signals had already been given by the jump master because the, uh, the white light went out and the red light went on. That means jump master's going to start giving us signals and get us ready because we've got about eight minutes before we're going to jump. Uh-huh. As I said before, uh, we were preceded by a group of six or seven men who had an instrument called Rebecca. Mm-hmm. It emitted a uh, Morse code signal, and the lead plane in uh, Section 16, for the most part, uh, had an instrument called Eureka, mm-hmm. and it picked up a signal that the pathfinders would emit on the ground on the drop zone if they were dropped properly, and having laid out a uh, luminous T with halophane uh, lamps uh, focused at 30 degrees above, you'd almost have to be directly over them to see the lamps. So the uh, signals between the pathfinders, Rebecca, and the lead aircraft, Eureka, were picked up at 20 miles distance from where we entered the Cottonton Peninsula. So we would hone in on that, and the aircraft would fly right up the long leg of the T, in the form of a T, the luminous indicator. And when we crossed the, the mark with a T, we got verbal signals from the uh, jump master. First was a stand up, so everybody stood up. We got a thumbs up on that. And then the next signal was, Check equipment. So Lieutenant Jansen would go from the uh, where I was, number one in the door, to number 18. He'd check number 18's equipment, see that he, his arm was in the proper position because if the uh, static line wrapped around it, he was in real great trouble. He isn't going to make it. He's going to have an armpit torn right off his body from the, from the shoulder. Mm-hmm. So then the Lieutenant would sound off and say, the 18 okay. 18 would check number 17, doing the same process as we, for the most part, hooked up our uh, static line, uh, anchor line cable to a uh, two, uh, five-eighths of an inch steel uh, cable running from the pilot's cabin all the way to the rear of the aircraft. So everybody was hooked up. We're jumping static line. Uh, after the uh, uh, checks were taken and uh, the lieutenant moved from the uh, uh, Van Buskirk, number 18, up to where I was, he and I had a bundle to toss out with six bundles also underneath the aircraft. Number two and three men, one, one guy by the name of Ficarota, 
had a, an electrical switch, and the guy behind him, he was my uh, assistant gunner on the mortar, he had uh, a manual switch. And uh, when the green light goes on, they're to pull those switches in case a bundle did not go out properly that we were throwing out. We got the bundle out okay, and uh, I don't know what drop zone we were supposed to be on, but uh, it looks like we crossed the tail end or section, the southernmost section of drop zone D. So the signal was dot, dot, dash, and uh, as we as we crossed that, we're true going 176 miles an hour, and uh, we were getting firing. It sounded like uh, rattling and nails hitting the hitting the wings. We, we did not have uh, a self-sealing gas tank, so that was a worry for everybody. We had dropped from uh, 1,500 feet down to 500 feet, and the jump altitude was really 750. So we were well under uh, a jump altitude. So the green light goes on, they swatted me in the rear, and uh, the two guys behind me pulled their switches prematurely. The the aircraft went up about 50 feet. And so I got hung up in the doors. I stepped out, and my left arm got caught in the lower left-hand corner of the door. So I was upside down, I swung out, and then came back and hit the side of the aircraft, swung out again, and I came back in again. I was able to straighten my arm a little bit. And I got loose. Mm-hmm. So I ended up uh, jumping at about the middle of the 18 men. So I was probably about number 9 or 10. So how do we assemble after we get on the ground? It was dark, dark, dark. We could see flashes of light, aircraft uh, shells bursting near us. As I looked out the door just before I jumped, and there was a rectangle of fire in front of me like uh, two Fourth of July's. Hmm. And the pilots could see that also, so for the most part, they tried to avoid it by dropping down at a lower altitude and trying to get out of the area. So we jumped in the lower portion of drop zone D, as far as I could able to determine. So my parachute opened at about 400 feet, I guess, and it was not much time to do anything. I, I made a few oscillations right and left, and, and uh, I had so much equipment with me. Uh, I weighed 276 pounds. Huh. Uh, others weighed 280, 250. It varied from there all over 200. My normal weight was 137. And uh, with the other 137 that I had as, as equipment, uh, I was uh, I was loaded. Yeah. So I had a safety mechanism that was uh, produced by the British and invented by the Americans. It was a t- kind of a toadstool design thing, and you armed it, and all the clasps, the metal clasps that uh, held you uh, uh, together in the uh, parachute apparatus were uh, lodged in this uh, toadstool instrument. And uh, you hit it after it was armed, and the, all of the metal would spring out, and you were free to jump right out of it. Now, I had so much equipment. Uh, my uh, uh, helmet was in the way when I jumped. My musette uh, bag came up in my face. The reserve parachute, which was, was useless, uh, it was in the way. Uh, so with two or three oscillations, uh, I was on the ground and made a right-hand uh, uh, rolling parachute landing fall, and I didn't get hurt because I had so much padding, yeah. and uh, that was a good thing. <laughs> 
Now, to try to get out of that harness, I couldn't do it. I couldn't get my hands on that uh, safety mechanism at all. So under my chin was the double zipper, and I opened up the double zipper, got my switchblade knife, and started to cut my way out. And then number two and three men came up. They had the mortar, and uh, we gathered together across an English, uh, or rather a, a uh, canal, and I heard, uh, the, you, you know about the crickets? For those who don't know, uh, crickets are small toys or devices that emit a clicking sound that the paratroopers use to identify themselves in the pitch black night of D-Day. So when I reached for my uh, switchblade knife on a double zipper, my cricket was right next to my double blade knife and uh, out came the cricket and I never did find it or could I use it. So we had to rely on Figueroa and Das of the cricketeers. Mm -hmm. So they cricketed, and uh, we heard some cricketing, and down the road came about six or seven guys, and we got close enough to one another and gave the password, which was slash thunder, and then you could uh, add a third part to it called welcome. Uh -huh. So we got the code uh, worked out okay. We recognized the way uh, we uh, uh, were dressed and the way that we walked, and every other physical uh, impediment that we were aware of in sharing equipment. I didn't recognize any of them, but one of them came up to me over the six and said he had a hand grenade with a pin pulled. I said, well, you give it to me because you can't put a pin back in a hand grenade. I got everybody down on the road and I rolled over and dropped it into the canal on the opposite side of the road and rolled back and, and for the most part... Uh, Uh, it exploded, and uh, that's the end of the chapter right there. Question number two. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll let you have some questions. Yes, <laughs> but you can keep on with your D-Day. It's uh, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so uh, here we have eight or nine guys now just standing in the middle of the road and uh, nothing going on with a lot of... Uh, canonizing and whatnot. Incidentally, uh, Marvin Van Buskirk ended up in the English Channel. And uh, he was a boxer, pugilist of some uh, speed and development, and he was able to make it ashore all right. Took all his clothes off and, and uh, tried to go to sleep in, uh, in, in the wet parachute until he heard a lot of firing, got his clothes on in a big hurry and joined the fray. So I didn't see him from that point on until uh, we had to return to uh, England. We began to break up into groups of three, and uh, we were walking down the road to a good military formation. There was a farmhouse about, uh, oh, five or ten yards off the main street, or it wasn't a city, but just uh, occupying uh, acreage. And I thought, well, we haven't had any Germans yet, but we need to... Uh, find out where they are and uh, cost them as best we can because we're, our objective was to destroy communications. So we played cat and mouse and tiger and, and uh, any other kind of animal you want to put in there as a, as a wrestling point. I told Floyd Martin, he was right with me, to go up to the door of the house and just knock on it and uh, don't bang on it like a Uh, like a crazy American, like an ugly American, just bang on the, just hit the door, and, and we'll wait and see what happens. I sent the rest of the guys around to the rear of the house in case there were Germans. So about 30 seconds later, a Frenchman came to the to the door, and he was dressed in a long white nightgown 
from shoulder to floor or to doorstep. He had a white tousled cap with a pom-pom on the end of it. And in his hand, he had a dish with a lighted candle. Now, I have a question for you. What does that remind you of? Right, the uh, story with the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future by... Um, Dickens, the yeah. Christmas Carol. Exactly, Dickens. Yeah, so I started to laugh. <laughs> and you know, Floyd Martin reminded me, uh, the noises that we are hearing now are pretty much the same noises you find in any major city going down the main boulevard and uh, make sure that I don't lose contact with the situation that we're in. So I quickly uh, moved from a, a point of enjoying the uh, the fun that was taking place at the door to one of seriousness because I, I was still in enemy territory and it was really dangerous. Mm -hmm. So we broke up and uh, we started to look for bundles because they were spread all over creation. And uh, we uh, took uh, wheelbarrows wherever we could find them and then uh, loaded load the wheelbarrows and, and uh, brought the bundles to a correct collection point under uh, Major Allen. And uh, he had about, we had about 50 men there. And uh, Colonel Johnson and the rest of the guys in the uh, other sections of uh, 501 Jump Uh, I don't know where they were. Our, my company commander was a drop 20 miles from uh, his objective. Major Gage, who was related directly to uh, General Gage of the British forces during the Revolutionary War, mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, he, he uh, accosted a German machine gun uh, placement and got his uh, arm shot off. So he was uh, taken in by the Germans and given first aid. And we didn't know where we were. We ended up with some guys in the 82nd Airborne with us, some with the 506 Airborne, some of the 502. So we all knew what we were supposed to do for the most part, and we did it. Lieutenant Breer, who was a uh, second lieutenant, was in the aircraft coming across the English Channel with uh, General Taylor. General Taylor had made four jumps and had and, and made his fifth jump as a qualified parachute <laughs> by going into combat. And uh, so they landed, and uh, we never had any contact with them for quite some period of time. But Lieutenant Breer was detailed by uh, General Taylor as soon as he landed was to make his way at, uh, immediately toward Utah Beach so that he wanted the exact time that the paratroopers would make contact with the incoming 4th Infantry Division. And that time has been recorded so inappropriately in so many different ways and places that uh, I talked to Lieutenant Breer about it, and he said he met uh, the uh, Captain Mabry of the 4th Infantry Division at 11.04 on June 6th. Mm -hmm. So that was a good thing to know, really. <laughs> and I could be authoritarian on that one. <laughs> so after we gathered bundles and, and uh, moved toward our objective was the La Barquette Locks, we came to a point where at uh, roads convened, and uh, one went to Carrington, another to San Marigles, another to San to La Barquette Locks. Carrington was about 300 meters above the Dove River, which for the most part was uh, right in front of us, with two tributaries, the Madeleine and the uh, Jordan River. 
They were smaller, but they were just tributaries. And then there was a set of locks at La Barquette that controlled the flood tide of the water coming in and going out. Carrington is at a low point uh, at uh, the area of La Barquette. You go toward the east, the land rises, and so all the water flow is from uh, uh, east to west and flowed into the English Channel. So the locks were important. And uh, the German 6th Parachute and 1st Parachute Infantry Regiments were in the vicinity. They were having a party on uh, June 5, and uh, they were uh, split into three battalions. One, I think the 2nd Battalion was at Perrier, the 1st Battalion was at Carenton, and 3rd Battalion was uh, moving in the direction of Utah Beach to uh, see what was going on there mm-hmm. and to figure out if this is a, uh, a pretense of a false landing or is it really the thing. So uh, we had gathered together in our uh, 50 men under uh, Major Allen and uh, we met Colonel Johnson en route to uh, Hell's Corner. The Germans at Carenton with their myopic vision couldn't determine who all the soldiers were down there on the estuary where the Doof River flows into the English Channel. The Germans were coming down N-13 uh, past uh, St. Marie de Mont and uh, one of the other cities, and we were aware of that. I was in, uh, in next to a Lieutenant Parker, who was a naval officer and in charge of gunnery on the SS Quincy, and uh, he had radio contact with them. So Colonel Johnson knew that the Germans were coming down in 13, so he wanted fire put on them. So he uh, had uh, Lieutenant Parker contact the uh, gunnery officer on the Quincy, and they had to make certain that their communication was proper by asking baseball questions, and so it was okay. Uh, they fired three shots. Oh, oh boy, did they whistle. They were low, and they were whistling, and they landed about a quarter of a mile from where I was, right next to uh, Lieutenant Parker at uh, Hill's Corner. And the second one uh, landed uh, even closer to us, and the third one was right on target. We developed a battle with the the 6th Parachute Infantry Regiment, Mm -hmm. because they were coming back from Utah Beach, toward Penemy and Malay Millionaire, Les Forges, and uh, La Marquette Locks. We set up a defense. The Germans in Carenton couldn't figure out what was going on down there on the estuary because here's a lot of soldiers all moving one toward the other, and uh, they were all pretty much dressed the same. So they held their fire for quite some time to figure out what was happening. We put machine guns on the uh, right section and and, uh, mortars on the left section and just waited for them to cross the little channels and rivulets in the uh, pastures and come toward us. Some of the guys were pretty itchy, so they fired, and firing broke out. Colonel Johnson uh, took two uh, GIs, one that was named Blanchard, I don't remember the name of the other guy, with the white flag, and uh, tried to contact the German uh, officer in charge and ask him uh, what he intended to do. He intended not to surrender, which Colonel Johnson asked him to do. We don't surrender, it's too early. 
So they they didn't get anywhere. They started back toward our lines, and uh, they were fired upon by the Germans. They got they made it back okay. Half an hour later, they both went out with another GI who could speak German, and told them we're going to give you guys the Germans a half an hour of uh, rest and recovery, and uh, all of the wounded are to put bayonets attached to the rifles, jam the bayonet and the rifle into the ground and put your helmet on top of the butt of the rifle if you're wounded. We're going to call a truce for half an hour and pick up your wounded. So they did that for the most part, and, and uh, the guys got itched a little bit with mortars and machine guns. So the ultimate was that 400 Germans surrendered right there. Because they figured, for the most part, is it, that they were surrounded, but they weren't. They were only facing a small group of about 100 to 150, as Colonel Johnson and uh, and Major Allen uh, joined forces. So uh, La Roquette became secure for the most part. And uh, I was sent with uh, George Zeborowski and Tony Doss over to La Marquette Lock. And as we crossed it, we were fired upon. We escaped that. I told the guys that we're not going in the houses. Uh, any Germans in there, for the most part, probably could uh, capture us or kill us, for the most part. We searched around the houses and found them vacant. Then we went in the house, searched that. They were vacant. So we set up outside the house in an orchard just to the between N13, which is about a quarter of a mile away, and a lot of our cat locks. And uh, the Dove uh, River runs right past the locks, and the uh, Madeleine and Jordan Rivers as tributaries also. So they were we were protected for the most part by anyone trying to get across the river there. But moving from Utah Beach, uh, running parallel to the uh, the rivers, uh, some German forces could come in there, or they could come in from N13. So moving into the orchard, uh, we uh, set up a, a defensive position. Uh, I took the corner where uh, the uh, orchard made a, a right turn, and uh, next to me, about 10 feet or so, was uh, Tony Dawson, and next to him, another 30, 20 or 30 feet, was uh, George Severowski. And we tied parachute nylon cord to our wrist, absolutely no talking during the daylight. We were probably seen from Utah Beach and seen from the Carentan, where the Germans had a myopic uh, view of what was going on and didn't know who was whom. That's why they didn't fire upon us. Mm-hmm. So uh, nightfall came, and uh, I set up six stakes perpendicular to the Dew River, ran wire, barbed wire, basically, whatever I could find from one stake to another, and then tied tin cans onto uh, uh, nylon cord and uh, a wire and filled them with cans. And uh, it was very low to the ground, so anyone coming through there, for the most part, is going to trip on one of them and set it off. And uh, since we couldn't see at night and so dark as it was, you just, uh, us three guys, we had a sector of fire, and we just fired away. At 2 o'clock in the morning, we heard the rattling of tin cans uh, on to our left, and we just opened up and fired, and we had uh, one German that was shot out there. Now, we didn't know whether he was a, a deserter from N-13 or from Utah Beach 
and lost fortunes or penny or lay millionaire. But uh, he was out there uh, maybe possibly as a scout. I don't know. But he mm-hmm. moaned and groaned. He was mortally wounded, but he moaned and groaned for hours. So George couldn't stand it anymore, so he went out and finished him off with his uh, trench knife. And then in the morning, we pulled his body in and dug a hole, uh, for the most part, at the uh, base of an apple tree. And I cut some branches off, made a Christian cross, and, and put it at the head of it. And I took his jump wings, and I still have his jump wings in my in my repertoire of, wow. of, uh, of personal items that uh, I picked up on the drop zone in the battleground. Wow. And um, how did you feel that day? Were you anxious, scared, or not at all? We were hungry. We had only uh, one day of rations with us. Yeah. We were dog hungry, and where we're going to find food, wherever we can, and then take whatever we wanted. Because it was a loot of war. And uh, we uh, uh, had more hand grenades than we had Germans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so we had to set up our hand grenades as uh, impediments to anyone crossing our front as best we could. As we moved about, we went from uh, uh, determination yeah. to feeling superior. Okay. Because we were with a group. If we were just by ourselves, one-on-one, uh, that would be bad business. Because yeah. we'd have to rely one upon the other. So that brought out some of the training that uh, our officers placed in front of us. Uh, in in, in uh, Camp Dakota, Georgia, and uh, Camp Mackle, they uh, put us into uh, uh, awkward situations as often as they possibly could. Mm-hmm. And we had to figure our way out. And so doing, it's fight or flight. So we knew we were going to be behind enemy lines, so it's fight. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had to work out in our minds what we're going to do in case this or that happens. So there's a lot of scenarios going on in our minds. And we began to narrow those scenarios down by logging in what we might and thought would be the best plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance... uh, uh, if we were uh, taking over a hedgerow uh, and we saw Germans coming in, uh, we may not want to accost them right away. Let's back up three hedgerows. And so they will, the Germans that come in, they wouldn't find us on the hedgerow. They'll sling their rifles on their on their shoulders and light their cigarettes and, and sing their national anthem. They come to the second hedgerow and they wouldn't find us. The third hedgerow, we'd pounce on them. Yeah. So, uh, just a little strategy and techniques, and key word here is innovation. Hmm. We were most innovative bunch of guys that you could ever imagine. Everybody had ideas to what to do and how to do it. So, for the most part, we we acted individually and collectively when we could agree. So there was a lot of feeling going on. And uh, we didn't have any officers with us, only enlisted men, except one, Lieutenant Jansen. He finally joined us. Mm-hmm. After we got pinned down uh, by a German sniper uh, in the hedgerows, uh, the, the uh, first sergeant called me up and uh, told me he uh, we were low on ammunition, which was not correct. We were not low on ammunition, but we wanted to get me to... Uh, uh, get somebody to get the ammunition. I said, well, I'll get it. And he said, no, you don't. You get a volunteer. Mm-hmm. 
So I went, I crawled back in the ditch and got to my uh, squad, and uh, it took about five minutes before anyone came up with, I'll do it. Frank Ficarota, uh he decided that he would uh, volunteer to uh, try to find some ammunition. So uh, he crawled back toward an opening in the hedgerow where there was a large gate about uh, over 30 feet wide in two sections, went through the gate, went down the road. He couldn't find any uh, 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 depot of ammunition. He met uh, Lieutenant Jansen, and uh, they both returned to the company, uh, we didn't have a company commander now. The company commander, for the most part, was uh, Sergeant uh, uh, Marshal Buckridge as first sergeant. But Lieutenant Jansen was coming in now. They crossed the uh, hedgerow at a point where one road meets another, and they had to stand up and do and do it. And the sniper saw Frank Ficarota, and they shot, and they got him right in the head. And he went head first down into the ditch, and the bullet struck uh, uh, also uh, Lieutenant Jansen in the stomach. I don't clearly remember what we did next, but uh, we were able to move a little bit after the sniper found out that uh, it's a, a good idea he better get out of there. Mm-hmm. Well, we went from uh, a small group of uh, 50, then to we moved to a group of uh, 150 at Penemy, well, we captured Germans, and, and that was a confident builder. Because it was a good night. They were three or four times as many as we were. And to capture those guys, uh, uh, since they were airborne troops, uh, they were pretty well uh, oriented as to, as to what to do because they had been there for three or four years. Mm. So we gained a lot of confidence uh, in, in that manner. But uh, yet we were had to be very cautious in what we did and how we did it and when we did it, and under what conditions we're going to do it in. So we moved about with stealth and uh, uh, being very cautious about what might be ahead of us. And uh, all the incidents in training that the officers put before us, we developed that confidence and how to solve that issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, well, Tom, we have so much to talk about, and I'm not even halfway through my questions. Um, how are you feeling? Should we keep on going? I'm not tired. He's not tired. <laughs> okay, great. We'll finish with a couple of questions about going back to Normandy, and and then we'll cover the rest of the war in the second episode. He's given me the big thumbs up. All right. Thank you. Um, so, Tom, last year you were all over the news for jumping again um, and on, on the same spot as you did 75 years earlier. Um, what were your thoughts on the plane going back to Carentan? Real deep, penetrating excitement. It was, a, it was a reliving and a real thrill, for the most part, uh, jumping with so many guys mm-hmm. uh, under those conditions uh, in the daylight when they were not shooting at us. <laughs> at night they were blasting us away as best they possibly could and I thought the the bullets were going to come through the body of the aircraft on uh, June 6, 1944 and uh, uh, for the most part changed my plumbing <laughs> but uh, yeah it was, it was a reliving and it was in more depth it's like seeing a motion picture the second time, and uh, you look for more detail. Mm-hmm. So I could visualize, for the most part, 
the, the ground level and more detail and uh, not knowing who I was jumping with, but I knew that they would give me any confidence for the most part that I needed uh, because they were there. Mm. So I was I was reliving each one of those guys represented someone uh, someone to me. Mm. You must be so disappointed not being able to uh, jump again this year. Oh yeah, well things change, and uh, unforeseen things change, and uh, we can't open up uh, old wounds because there's no way of correcting uh, and sealing off and and uh, terminating those old wounds. So we just live with what we have to live with and, and uh, uh, make the most out of it for the most part. So the emotions run pretty high, mm -hmm. and uh, we were dressed pretty much the same, heavy boots and heavy equipment, mm -hmm. and uh, jumped tandem this time, guy by the name of Art Schaefer. The ride, on the, the ride down to the earth was great. Enjoyed that. Although it was short, but it, it was enjoyable. We made a, uh, a landing. Some people questioned the landing, <laughs> but uh, nobody got hurt. And the mayor, Karen Town, was right out there to shake my hand and, and give me a hug. <laughs> <laughs> the emotions of, for, after landing were running extremely high. Yeah. Imagine uh, all of those government officials, uh, and especially the mayor of Karen Town, He said it was one of the most momentous events that has ever occurred in his lifetime. <laughs> wow. So I don't know what to do with a comment like that, absorb <laughs> it and agree with him. And, and yes, me too, Mayor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by the way, every time I see you in Normandy, you are surrounded by fans like a real rock star. Do you enjoy all the attention? Uh, go from uh, zero as uh, Colonel Johnson uh, accepted us to hero, that's a long trek. Hmm. And that was four years. And hmm. we never did expect, for the most part, or any part thereof, that we would be moving through all of the accolades and the feelings that the French have for the Americans. Hmm. It was outstanding. It was amazing. And people came from all over France just to see... Uh, whoever was uh, returning as an American. And uh, we were just stunned and physically stunned and uh, frozen in intellect for the most part. On Carrington 2019, uh, uh, Brenda took me to the grandstand and uh, I walked up and here I met uh, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mike Miley, mm -hmm. four-star general. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I talked with him for a minute, and he was listening. And uh, I'm wondering why he's listening. He doesn't need to talk to some staff sergeant. Uh, I shook his hand, and I told him uh, what courage he had to undergo and, and take up the position that he had for the most part. And I could feel his courage flowing right into my arms. <laughs> and uh, I think I dumbfounded him. He didn't know what to say to that one. Hmm. And uh, then I... I The music started, the national anthem of France started, and, and uh, then it continued on with the American, and there was no time to speak to the uh, commanding general of the 101st Airborne Division, uh, two-star general, uh, General Walensky. And uh, after the music stopped, General Walensky asked, well, how come you didn't say something like that to me? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I ran the gauntlet for the most part of 
of emotions again. Mm. And uh, right about that time, uh, I had been up and down the scale with uh, so many people shaking hands and, and hugs and and leaving lipstick on my face, and uh, it was it was amazing. It was an amazing journey. It was better than uh, Frank Sinatra's "From Here to Eternity." <laughs> mm. Yeah, you definitely deserve all that. You know, we we are eternally grateful for our freedom and for everything you've done. Yeah, there are so many ways that they expressed it, in so many different ways that we never expected. Mm. that uh, for the most part we were just dumbfounded we just did not know how to act mm. in regard to all those accolades so many people coming out and uh, wanting to talk uh, wanted to shake hands uh, whatever you know mm. and uh, 50 people surround you and then they all want to talk with you how do you choose the ones to talk with <laughs> 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 yeah, it, it was a, it was an enjoyable situation, but it was a very difficult one and a trying situation to accommodate. So we wanted I wanted to accommodate everyone because they made an effort to come out and see us, mm. and we made an effort to get there. So it was a it was a meeting of the minds and and a meeting of the emotions for the most part. Mm. So it was an emotional up and down the scale, and uh, as we went from. Uh, a group to group or person to person, it subsided and then picked up. Yeah. Subsided and then picked up. It went to some crescendos of uh, height that we could never imagine. We didn't even, I wasn't even capable of liking to uh, come forth with that kind of emotions. Do you have a special message for all those who wanted to see you jump again this summer? Make sure that they show up. Because <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see them all again. <laughs> Oh. And uh, revisitation, I know a number of them, and that uh, we still uh, have a good, solid American and French uh, friendship uh, solidarity. Because, you know, the future uh, generation of France, and France has lost two generations in two world wars. Mm. So you're pretty well depleted, so we want to preserve you and uh, uh, to continue on with American solidarity as best we possibly can. Grow up healthy and wealthy and wise. That's very nice. Well, thank you very much for your time, Tom. It, yeah, it's great. It was more than a pleasure. It was, it was another uh, another event that, uh, that was equal just to talk to uh, uh, people of France. Yeah, we're, we're very grateful. I trace, my, I trace my ancestry back to 1791. Yeah. As a uh, as a Frenchman, <laughs> he's very proud of that. And and can you can you speak French a little bit? No, I don't know any French. Other than uh, uh, we must apologize, and I must apologize for all of the people of the United States Army for we corrupted your language. <laughs> we drank your calvados. We chased your chicks, and uh, we did we did a lot of things that were wrong in so doing and in so leaving, and uh, we come back to amend those if possible. <laughs> I I know that you you know a very uh, useful sentence in French. I said, "Avez-vous une bouteille de vin rouge?" I didn't know he knew that. <laughs> This is great. <laughs> Well, thank How you. How much time did we spend together here already? Uh, uh, two hours. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at least for him. 
Yeah, it's a bit late here in France, but it, it's fine. It's a, it's a pleasure to uh, spend an evening with Tom Rice, the famous Tom Rice. <laughs> well, thank you. Very kind. It's very nice of you to say that. <laughs> Have a nice day, Tom, and looking forward to speaking to you again. Okay, good. Thank you very kindly. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, that's it for part one. From now on, I'll release one episode a month and next time I'll talk to another veteran. But we'll call Tom later to talk about Operation Market Garden, the siege of Bastogne, during which he was wounded, and visiting Hitler's eagle's nest in Berchtesgaden. So look out for part two later this year. The French can read some of Tom's wartime letters in the tome 2 of Till Victory, which is for now only available in France, but you will find more than 50 different stories of Allied soldiers, along with the letters they wrote during the war in Till Victory, the Second World War, by those who were there very soon. I would like to thank Christophe and Don Dugas and Tom's wife Brenda for their help setting up this interview. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. There are a lot of great episodes coming and you don't want to miss them. Make those stories known, share them around and hit the like button on whatever you're listening to them on. All the links for the book and social media are on tillvictory.com and do not hesitate to send me a message. Till next time, thank you for listening. Au revoir.